Good evening and welcome to Chat with the Designers, your live, online, interactive weekly magazine for hams, homebrewers, and experimenters across the Fruited Plains. This is George, N2APB, and along with me tonight, per usual, is co-host Joe, N2CX, and our show tonight concerns uh, Analog Dialogue, a really, really cool show that's going to focus on an interesting reference manual. They call it a pocket guide from Texas Instrument, the Analog Engineer's Pocket Reference. So that's uh, the topic. We're going to go through that in style that we've come to call Analyze This, whereby we go through some circuits or books or different topics, antennas and whatever, and we kind of break it down and analyze it and, and discuss it in terms that that we are familiar with, that we are comfortable with and know, and maybe even delve into some unknown territory. But tonight we also have a, a really uh, a special show because we're going to be dealing with uh, updates on a variety of loose ends that we have uh, uh, in the project space for chat with the designers. We're going to be providing some updates on our GPSDO project, our Elmer 101 course, and the companion SW30 Plus kit. And lastly, a quick update on the uh, the GPS terminal. All of these different things, if you're a regular listener to Chat with the Designers, you'll recognize as being uh, some of our projects that we've had in, uh, oh, the recent two, three months. And uh, almost everything. She was Joe. I, I think almost everything is coming to a head right about now, isn't it? Indeed. So uh, we're going to be jumping right into things here. But I wanted to mention that if you haven't had a chance to look at the whiteboard and in it as you peruse the whiteboard while we're chatting and flapping our lips here you'll notice that we have with us some guest designers again and actually this is a very special treat tonight because what we're doing is surfacing uh, kind of what goes on behind the scenes here at chat with the designers we have um and you've seen bits and pieces of it all, all the way along but here we have almost the whole gang and what our designers are here with us that work with Joe and me on a regular basis behind the scenes on chat with the designers. And it's uh, no particular order here, but uh, Dave, AD7JT, Mike, WA8BXN, Craig, AA0ZZ, and Larry, K3PEG. So these are the team that kind of work with Joe and me in producing and projects, testing them, documenting them designing them, laying them out, all sorts of stuff, kidding them up. Boy, we're going to get to um, each one of these guys as the show proceeds. And then you can see our pictures down below. We have an illustrious cast of photos down there, farther down on the whiteboard. So you can kind of see uh, the role each of us plays. And by the way, this is the dreamer speaking to you right now. So anyways, let's uh, let's get right into the uh, program. Joe, you want to uh, maybe uh, mention just kind of like you found this document, how you found it, how it came about. We've got the link listed below there on the uh, on the page. But tell us a little bit about the Analog Designers Pocket Reference from Texas Instruments. Sure, will do. Yeah, I uh, subscribe to a number of uh, tech magazines industry magazines and now and again they pop up uh, some handy reference guides and whatever else uh, that I try to share with George I think they're of interest and I thought that this uh, analog engineers thing was kind of handy um, as it says it's pocket reference it's in the vein of um, what we hams have, have had uh, lately for a lot of the popular rigs um, an assemblage of cheat sheets which has a whole bunch of uh, relevant info in um, kind of an ADD sort of way. Just a quick hit to give you some in insight into um, uh, various topics to have a compact reference 
that uh, you can you can uh, look into when you want to check something out very quickly without having to uh, dig into the uh, dig on the web and uh, and find stuff. Um, I don't know about you guys, but when I get on the web to look for something, a, uh, a 30 second task ends up being um, half an hour because I find other interesting stuff. But the analog engineer's pocket reference is uh, just a quick hit, something you can uh, you can either download or or put a link to on your computer so that you can uh, find some info in a hurry. Um, quick hit and uh, get uh, get smart about various topics uh, at a at a pretty high level. And uh, we're going to try to go into a little more uh, this evening. Back to you, George. Thank you, Joe. And indeed, we're going to get into it. So we really really recommend that. Uh, you all download this uh, uh, this ebook from the TI website. You might have to register. Just give your name and address. Um, no big deal. I have not received any any spam from it um, since I did it a month or six weeks ago, and uh, I've enjoyed going through it. That's something that I personally enjoy. We're not going to talk about this uh, this aspect of it, but there's a really cool summary of. SMT component layout uh, dimensions, and uh, it's really useful for me as I'm laying out circuit boards and so on. But there's some other great uh, material that we've uh, taken snapshots of, just a couple of of um, little uh, uh, snippets of topics that we thought both would fit into the time space here, but also be of great interest to chat with the designer listeners, whether you are online, and we really um, urge you to ask a question or um, raise your hand, as it were, if you if you want to add some comments here to us live, or uh, send us an email if you're listening to this podcast uh, from the comfort of your automobile, your hotel room up in Massachusetts, or wherever you might happen to be. Um, just a quick note, um, if you have a, a large screen, display screen in your PC, please um, um, enlargen the window uh, of the whiteboard such that it's, it's, it extends as probably as big as you can, and that will give you the best viewing experience. There are some large graphics that are intended to be all on the same row, and if you have too small of a screen, it'll wrap and kind of look uh, a little unusual because it'll go to multiple lines instead. Okay, let's get into it. Um, uh, number one there on the whiteboard is Bodhi plots. Um, Joe, my, uh, um, I really did. I never even called it a Bodhi plot uh, when we first, uh, when I first encountered um, the plots of uh, LPF, low pass filter types of performance data and uh, seeing where the break, uh, where the knee is on a low pass filter or a high pass filter and the slope, which is all important relative to telling us what the performance of a low pass filter is. Well, our number one item here um, is really entitled DB definitions um, because DB decibels is a uh, common, if not universal in RF circles, universal way of referencing um, uh, gain, loss, and other and power. And um, this chart that's shown here is a really handy um, reference to keep in mind. And you can kind of dial up your your pocket references this page whenever it comes time to talking about dBs. And and uh, we've shown a picture off to the right, which indicates a, a typical low pass filter. And uh, Joe, I wonder if you can comment on on uh, this topic of the dB definitions in the Bodhi plot. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, back when I was in school, we never called them Bodhi plots either. Bodhi plots were pretty specific to things that showed showed uh, <clears throat> pole zero diagrams and you know that kind of fancy stuff. But at any rate, it is a uh, is a graphical means. Bodhi plots are a graphical means of showing information about um, 
um, in this case, um, gain or loss with frequency, as George pointed out. Um, quick hit so that at a glance, you can get some idea of um, the frequency performance of uh, G an amplifier or a filter um, or, um, you know, just about any kind of circuit. Even an attenuator, you know, some attenuators uh, have uh, frequency uh, dependency. Um, and this is a plot, as you might see on a spectrum analyzer, to show you uh, amplitude versus frequency. Very handy way. I, I tend to think in, think in graphical terms. So it's a very handy way of getting information across very quickly. And you can get it deep into the mathematics of uh, doing all the calculations and, and the rest of that. But once you get good with um, understanding and handling decibels, it's a very shorthand way of, of talking about uh, magnitudes of things that uh, gets the idea across quickly in a high-level sort of way. And, of course, if you want, you can go much deeper. But uh, very good way of doing it. And um, the, the frequency plots are an excellent way of providing um, you know, pictures worth a thousand words. And uh, the frequency plots are just exactly that sort of thing. Yep, and uh, there's a, a really cool part of our part of the diagram on the right is a way to interpolate between uh, on a logarithmic um, um, horizontal scale, and I would imagine it would work. Well, no, no, um, on the horizontal scale, it would it's logarithmic, and a way to figure out where that knee is based on relative placement um, in in between. For example, between 10 and 100, you might guess uh, just at a shot. Well, on a linear scale, it looks like it might be about 50. Um, Hertz, I guess the, that's the label. But in actuality, it's not 50 hertz, it's 31.6. And you can do that by a simple measurement, graphical measurement, and applying the the, uh, the formula. Because you're dealing in log space, you need to uh, deal with some exponents to get it back and, and uh, um, work the numbers in that way. Alrighty, um, and, and this is kind of important, and I'll dwell just for an extra moment, even though I'm trying to move quickly through this material. Uh, Dave, 87JT, um, does this plot look familiar to you? Uh, not really. <laughs> you very rarely see anything that linear. <laughs> okay, you didn't take my bait. But uh, your point well taken about that being it's an idealized plot. But um, this is a um, the SNA, uh, Scalar Network Analyzer, that we've been uh, talking about in the past and from time to time. And the pretty cool instrument that is in, in a portable that you can hold in your hand has a display that uh, displays in vertical uh, dB and horizontal in uh, in frequency. So whether it's actually logarithmic or not isn't is my point is not my point. But actually, it's that kind of a plot that you actually see graphically very often in PC programs and other kinds of portable instruments these days from MFJ, from, oh golly, from AIM and other types of instruments. Okay, um, Joe, let's move along here to the basic op-amp configurations. We included a fair number of quote-unquote typical, but I'm wondering if we can quickly uh, go through some of these and, and point out. I, I personally always find it uh, kind of handy to have such a reference at my side when I'm dealing with... Uh, Whipping up new circuits, I'm always able to kind of, uh, kind of uh, decipher, understand circuits that I'm looking at in a book. 
um, or a new schematic and trying to figure out which end is up and what's happening and what the gain stages are and so on. However, when I'm coming up with a new design and um, I'm trying to figure out, okay, I need, I need a unity gain, but I don't want it to invert or I need it to be a, a multiple input uh, uh, type of um, current signal and I need to provide some gain with that. Which circuits should I use? So we have maybe a I don't know, six or seven different circuits there. Joe, can you kind of characterize around these circuits and kind of give us a guide through them? Each one of these, by the way, is almost its own page in the pocket reference guide from TI. But uh, give us some thoughts here about op amp configurations. Sure. Yeah, I've, I've dealt quite a bit uh, with op amps, dealt with them. And George is right. It's handy to have a, uh, a quick visual reference when you're looking for something in particular. If you look at the first picture there, it's a, um, a non-inverting buffer. It's um, unity gain. The output is tied back to the inverting input of the uh, operational amplifier. And the input is applied to the, uh, um, I'm sorry, the output is applied back to the inverting input of the op amp. Um, and the input is applied to the non-inverting input. So what that means is as the signal goes positive at the input, it'll go positive at the output. And um, the output back to the input uh, directly there means you get unity gain. The advantage of this circuit is that um, it gives you a high impedance input uh, so you don't load down other circuits and a relatively low impedance output. So it is a good buffer. Um, to, uh, to use. Um, if you need some gain, uh, if you look at the second figure, which is called figure 18 on the whiteboard, it's the uh, non-inverting configuration for a gain amplifier. And what this does is it has a couple resistors in the feedback network to divide down the voltage, um, the output voltage, and apply it to the uh, inverting input. Um, so that you uh, you actually get uh, more output than input. And uh, this is the non-inverting configuration, so the, the polarity stays the same input to output. Um, again, handy, and um, again, a high input impedance and low output impedance. Um, figure 19 is the inverting configuration for an op-amp with uh, gain. Um, same idea to uh, get a uh, bigger signal out than, a, a, than um, you put in with the uh, the gain set by the uh, by the resistive network there there's a formula for it um this one uh unfortunately doesn't have as high an input impedance it's not as good um, as a buffer however it, it has other characteristics that uh, that make it handy and uh, does a good job uh, if you um, particularly if you need an, an inverted signal as the input goes plus the output goes negative and such uh, then it, it gets more complicated when you um, look at um, figure uh, 20, which uh, is an inverting summing configuration. Here, um, there are multiple inputs to one op amp and um, separate input resistors for each one. And you can set the gain for each input by selecting the appropriate resistors, the resistor values as shown by the formulas. So if, you're, if you have, uh, for example, a couple of audio sources you're summing together, uh, with different uh, different levels, you can equalize them in amplitude, not in frequency, but in, in amplitude, by just selecting the appropriate um, uh, resistors on the input by the uh, by the formulas. Then, of course, you can get um, even more um, um, complex if you want a non-inverting summing configuration by um, uh, going to what's in Figure 21 with uh, multiple inputs and multiple resistors. Here, unfortunately, there's there's not um, isolation between all the inputs. Um, the only isolation is uh, by virtue of the resistors. 
but it is a handy way to combine multiple inputs and uh, get a single output. Um, those are amplifiers which are uh, which have no frequency selectivity to them. But quite often you want to um, you want to roll off, uh, you, particularly in um, in audio amplifiers. You want to roll off the high frequencies. So you can do this by um, doing what they do in Figure 22, putting a capacitor across the feedback resistor. And what this does is to um, roll off high frequencies, and you can you can pick the uh, point on the curve. If you look uh, look down the page on the curve, you can see there's a um, uh, a roll off knee where the frequencies start to uh, start to decrease. The amplitude of the frequencies increase as you go higher in frequency. And uh, and you can pick uh, pick that point by uh, judicious choice of the receiver of the capacitor. Um, handy place where this is used is, um, for example, in the uh, soft rock and and many other receivers where you have an output from a, um, a mixer, um, a uh, double balance mixer or or a mixer with a BFO, where the input signal, the audio input signal, has some RF on it. Uh, well, you want to get rid of the RF. You don't want to amplify that along with the audio. So what you do in that case is to pick an appropriate uh, C1 capacitor to roll off the RF and not affect the audio or have minimal effect on the audio. And there are plots for this. Um, you can see a couple different configurations for the plots. But, uh, the basic idea is that when you add a capacitor there, um, it rolls off the higher frequencies and you can get rid of them to uh, get more utility out of the amplifier. Um, side note, um, the operational amplifiers we're talking about are really differential amplifiers. Should have mentioned it earlier, but the plus and minus inputs are differential, meaning that uh, it's the difference between the two inputs that gets amplified. And um, the differ differential, depending on the op amp, can be as low as millivolts to get output. They're very, very high gain devices. And um, um, with the feedback, it, it makes it very handy to get precision gain. You can set exactly the gain you want um, to uh, to do the job. And you, you know, you, you just pick the appropriate resistors and bang, it comes out. You don't have to diddle and tweak and, and all that. You can calculate what it's gonna be. And um, as long as you don't, uh, don't cheat on any rules, you get exactly what you want. Question. Nope. I just want to kind of move it along. That point that uh, you made about it being a differential amplifier, Joe, is, um, was really good. And, uh, um, and you should feel proud about that. <laughs> the, the point about it being a differential, I mean, really is a, that, that kind of explains it to you if you ever have a question about which input should I this go to or what's happening. Take the voltage follower, the, um, uh, the non-inverting voltage follower, which is at the top of the, of the, of the group of op amp photos here. And it's easy to see if you have got a, a positive signal going in the plus input. And as Joe said, he followed the signal through. It's going to, that that uh, positive signal is going to come out of the op amp output, but that's fed around to the negative input, such that there is no difference between the input, uh, the positive and negative, or the inverting and non-inverting uh, inputs. Thus, the V out is equal to V in. And the purpose for using this, as Joe said, is for um, impedance uh, matching buffering uh, types of uh, um, purposes. So that's a, a great addition. These are these are differential amplifiers. Um, maybe I'll, I'll just extend your question. Uh, let's take a pause here for some questions that, that you all might have uh, in mind. Um, I like the example that you gave, Joe, of the soft rock, how it's used in the I and the Q 
channels for the soft rock and oftentimes I'm I'm debugging a lot of soft rock stuff, getting it all working. And uh, following signals through makes a lot more sense if you can understand what's happening. But any questions here? Alrighty, nothing heard. Um, and by the way, the plots here that are shown to the right of the op-amp uh, diagrams are, da -da -da -da, they are Bode plots. Funny how it all kind of comes around. Now, item three, or section three, is uh, concerns op-amp bandwidth. And here is where we talk about the, uh, the, ban the gain bandwidth product. And as the note there says, as your, um, as the gain, actually I wrote that wrong, isn't it? No, I didn't. The, um, what I meant to, or intended to say is the frequency goes up and starts approaching the bandwidth limitation or bandwidth spec of the op amp, the gain is going to go down. And, um, that's something to be really uh, aware of. It's illustrated in the previous two diagrams uh, of the Bode plots that Joe was referring to. Um, in one, uh, in both actually, a capacitor, a feedback capacitor was added to force a roll off at a given frequency in order to limit the, the, the response of the op amp, uh, for specific reasons. In the, in the soft rock, it's specifically limited there in that way. So we don't have a lot of high frequency content that needs to be digitized by, um, the computer that's, that the op amps are feeding, you know, in order to demodulate the INEQ. But as you'll see, as you run out uh, in frequency up higher and higher, the, the curve continues to go down, and that's due to the limitations of the op amp. And it's something, Joe, to, to be really aware of when you're, when you're designing circuits, is it not? Indeed it is. Um, yeah, I've done uh, lots of active filters and found that uh, the common amps like the, uh, the venerable uh, uh, 741 op amps have a low gain width product. When you get the and the um, RC fifteen fifty eight, I think it is fourteen fifty eight. When you get to the high end of the uh, audio spectrum, the low gain band with product can kill you, so that the assumption of infinite gain doesn't work anymore and things don't work out. You've got to use something with a higher uh, gain bandwidth product. Similarly, when we were doing the DDS sixty, we wanted an amplifier on the output. Uh, for buffering and to get a little more signal out of it. And um, we had to look for amplifiers, um, and they were differential amplifiers with a high gain bandwidth product. Normally, the op amps you deal with have a gain bandwidth product of a megahertz or so. We had to go with something with a uh, gain bandwidth product on the order of 100 megahertz or more because we're pumping uh, multi-megahertz signals through it. So it is a, a consideration when you're picking a uh, an amplifier, an op amp, to... Uh, to get as high gain bandwidth product as you need. Now, on the other hand, you don't want to get it too high, or the darn thing may have a lot of gain at high frequencies and tend to oscillate on you. Oscillate, 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 oscillate. Like the feedback that I had when I connected earlier, at least here. Um, section four talks about a small signal step response. Now, this is kind of basic information. The reason we put this in here if I recall, Joe, is just to illustrate how the 10% and 90% uh, points on a rise time uh, or on a rising edge of a waveform is usually pretty good to keep in mind because um, because that's a good indicator of how fast a signal is rising. However, you put a note here that talked about, as an example, a scope with a bandwidth of 1 gigahertz has a rise time of uh, 0.35 nanoseconds. I guess that would be 350 picoseconds. But tell tell me why. Tell us why that you said that. Well, I said that because when you when you pick a uh, when you're picking a um, an oscilloscope, um, having been through this several times, 
if you're going to look at digital signals and you want to look at the edge of dig digital signals, um, you want to know how, how well the uh, digital signals go through a circuit, you need to know the rise and fall times pretty accurately. So you have to pick um, a scope, uh, an oscilloscope, with a proper bandwidth to get um, the kind of resolution, to get the rise and fall time resolution that you need of the oscilloscope. And this is a very handy, quick rule of thumb thing. You can just look at something and, and um, you know, if you're going to look at one nanosecond uh, rise and fall times and you've got a 100 megahertz scope, um, instantly you say to yourself, oh, that's not going to work because the scope's rise and fall time will only be uh, three and a half nanoseconds. So you won't be able to see a one nanosecond rise and fall time. Just a quick, uh, quick hit, something you can... Uh, uh, Easily remember to uh, to get the relationships down to uh, something that uh, you kind of knee jerk rather than having to put deep thought into it. Boy, these days I mean, I give a lot to have my knee jerk, and uh, with some of the back problems I've been dealing with, a nerve down a leg is the issue. But I understand what you're getting at, and in fact, I can recall a lot of times here on the bench when you're over here at the house and working down here in the lab with me, um, we've kind of wrestled with some scope probes um, from time to time, if you recall, and at least one or two of the instances had to do with this very issue. That's a that's a great example. Section five talks about instrumentation amplifiers. Joe, you saw you, you mentioned how it's there are special op amp circuits, but how can you tell us in layman's terms um, what what's so different about this compared to the the MC fourteen fifty eight that you referenced earlier, the common garden variety type of op amp? Oh, certainly, yeah. Uh, it can get pretty deep very quickly, but basically the idea is when you're working with um, uh, instrumentation uh, where you're measuring um, small signals, you want it um, often DC signals. You want to do it very accurately. For example, if you have a um, um, you have a, a a test bed in a factory where you have a whole bunch of sensors on um, um, on this test bed measuring various parameters. It might be uh, various voltages uh, for temperature and pressure and whatever else on an engine. The signals tend to be small and they tend to be noisy. Well, you've got to collect a whole bunch of these signals and um, shove them into a, a device that will log them and to correlate them. So what you need is a, an amplifier, a special type of amplifier called an instrumentation amplifier that looks at uh, differential signals uh, in a very precise way so that um, you can, having balanced signals lets you uh, cancel out the noise. The uh, differential uh, signals balance out the noise. And um, you have very good resolution in doing this, and you can run wires all over the place and not worry about pickup, noise pickup. Um, and often the signals are very, very small. If you're talking about thermocouples and that sort of thing, which we will a little bit later, they might have uh, voltages that are only in the millivolts. So you need a special type of amplifier, an instrumentation amplifier, that will look differentially to cancel out noise and to very accurately measure these low-level signals and give you clean outputs so that, uh, so that you can analyze what's going on. Kind of a specialty application that hams don't get into much, but um, if you're doing instrumentation or if you have certain kinds of test equipment where you're looking at uh, teeny tiny signals, they come in very handy. 
Yeah, but let me play the devil's advocate here. Um, the other op amps have uh, an inverting and not inverting inputs as well, and <clears throat> they deal with uh, differential inputs. Um, and sorry to belabor the point, but what is special then about the instrumentation amplifiers? The instrumentation amplifiers tend to have extremely good, well, there's a, a characteristic called the um, input offset voltage which means that um, there is a difference between the two um, inputs that you can measure. Um, and ordinary op-amps have um, generally uh, an error in the input where they're not exactly balanced. There might be a couple millivolts difference between the two. And if you're only looking at millivolt signals and you have an inherent uh, random offset in the amplifier you're looking at, it'll swamp the signal you're looking at. Um, the instrumentation amplifiers do special things and have high input impedances to uh, to not suffer from this. And they also have what's uh, called very good uh, common mode rejection. Common mode rejection is a term that um, um, if, if, for example, the, the two signals you're looking at uh, in this picture, Vn plus and Vn minus, um, might not be referenced to ground. They might be referenced to some other common voltage might be sitting a volt or two above ground. And um, one of the handicaps of, of common op amps is they have a limited um, uh, common mode rejection. In other words, they can't handle or they can't very accurately pick out differences in, in uh, signals that uh, are not referenced to ground. So the instrumentation amps tend to have very good common mode rejection so that they ignore the common voltage between the two and look strictly at the differences in a uh, very precise, very predictable uh, fashion. Thank you, Joe. That was really instructive for me. I uh, I appreciate that. Um, let's move on to the coax, uh, the coax section number six. Now we've talked about coax in the past. We had an entire episode um, relating to coax, so adding it here might be a little superfluous to chat with the designer needs because uh, again we've got some great references and charts in that uh, previous episode. Just as a reminder, listeners can go back to our homepage, uh, cwtd.org, um, and uh, there we've got a listing of all 75 previous episodes that we've done over the last three years. Either do a you know a search on that page for um, a keyword, or just kind of scan down and look for the topic of interest. And here I. I'm not sure what the top of what uh, what the topic was, but we certainly dealt with coax cables a lot. So we grabbed this table, uh, Joe, because there's a lot of common coaxial types there: RG58, um, all the way up to well, let's say go down to 174, the thin stuff. And uh, there's some 75 ohm stuff that sometimes we regularly out of pocket just sort of disregard, toss off to the side because that's TV or, or uh, cable related. But if you're kind of sharp and, and uh, uh, semi-clever, uh, you can use 75 ohm cable uh, pretty effectively here in the ham world as long as it's balanced and you maintain your characteristic impedance and transformations and and so on. But um, Joe, just uh, one comment maybe out of the uh, this table. What is probably the most important factor when considering a coax cable for a given application? Huh. <laughs> to me, the mo to me, the most common thing is the dB attenuation. And um, here, the, the unfortunately, the table only lists uh, attenuation 
per 100 feet at 750 megahertz. But you can get an idea by looking at this uh, of the relative attenuations, how much or how little the, uh, the cables have. So again, this is a quick uh, cheat sheet to give you a um, kind of a rough order of magnitude of what's going on so that you can see, for example, um, if you're pumping um, stuff, uh, um, two meter stuff through RG174, um, well, at, at uh, 750 megahertz, it's going to have 23 dB of loss per 100 feet. But you figure at um, even at two meters, which is one fifth that, it's probably going to have five or six dB at least loss. Whereas if you use RG, uh, RG8 or 9914, you're going to have um, one-fifth that loss, uh, one-fourth that loss. So it'll only be a dB or two. So you get a quick idea of what's going on. And to, to George's point about, um, um, about the using 75-ohm coax, I worked on a repeater. I was part of a repeater group in Lancaster some years ago. When we first put the repeater up, we had a... Um, um, we had a 120-foot um, tower, so we had probably almost 200 feet of um, coax run up to the antenna on the darn thing, which would have been more loss than we wanted. But it just happened that one of our group worked for the cable TV company, and he had access to some 75-ohm hardline. So till the, uh, the group got rich enough to buy some good 50-ohm hardline, we used a 75-ohm hardline, which had, um, um, I think it was only a dB or two loss for the 150 feet. And uh, the little elevated SWR, one and a half to one instead of one to one, didn't affect us in the least. It worked just great. Oh, I, I believe it. I really do. And uh, I've, I've experienced a little bit of that uh, myself, as I was alluding to. Um, let's go. I'm going to I'd like to cover this next section, which is also coaxial cable. It talks about the equations, but just very quickly. And then I want to move on to some of our other project uh, discussions for the evening. If we have time, I'll come back and we can come back and talk about temperature measurement devices and then also some A to D and D to A types of consider considerations. Uh, we often bring analog signals into the computer and, and have the computer and the microcontrollers that we deal with um, spit out analog signals or things that look like analog signals. And consideration of the bit depth is kind of important. But there's a fox hunt that goes on that starts tonight in about 20 minutes. And I want to be sure we cover some of the, uh, the project material before many of um, or some of you will be disappearing and going looking for foxes. Um, but I wanted to make a mention here about the coax cable equations first. Um, and they might kind of look a little bit Greek to you if you've not considered it. Um, and uh, but but it's really good reference in relation to the the dimensions, physical dimensions of the coaxial cables. Um, and one of the points I wanted to make, and oftentimes in um, our amateur work here on the bench and in the field with antennas and feed lines and ATU performance and matches and SWR and all that sort of stuff, we use uh, some pretty fancy um, and now inexpensive equipment for determining the, those various characteristics that I was mentioning. Um, one of them, or one class of them, is an antenna analyzer. Um, an antenna analyzer such as the MFJ259, ubiquitous upon just about every ham's bench uh, since the dawn of, well, since the dawn of the 259. Um, um, another one, too, is the Micro 908 antenna analyzer, uh, a product that Joe and I kind of whipped up uh, a number of years ago and is still in use on my bench and many benches around uh, around the world based on some of the comments and questions that I've got still coming in. 
Um, also, like the uh, the little Sark, the Sark 110 analyzer is, is looks like a um, a thin package of cigarettes. Not that I smoke, but I'm just saying it's about that size, a thin package there, and it is way way cool. Um, and the reason I'm saying these things, oh, and also another one is the um, the AIM uh, the AIM 4170 and derivatives um, from Array Solutions. These are all antenna analyzers that incorporate equations, just like you see here in the coaxial cable equation section. So you oftentimes you don't need to know or memorize these equations unless perhaps you're studying for some type of an FCC exam. But um, knowing where they come from and uh, you know how they are how the results are used is probably most important. Would you say, Joe? Oh yeah. One other thing, um, it's not immediately apparent, but um, those formulas allow you to calculate the equivalent um, capacitance and inductance of the uh, transmission line. And as it turns out, the equivalent circuit for transmission line is like a distributed uh, low-pass filter with um, uh, inductance and series of capacitors to ground um, so that you can, um, by knowing how to calculate this, you can calculate, for example, what a quarter-wave or half-wave line uh, length would have to be from those formulas without even measuring it. So you can do phasing lines for antenna projects. Indeed. Um Let's let's take a break here. Ask for some questions because we're going to transition away from the TI reference manual for um, for a bit. We may get a chance to come back to it, as I said. But um, any observations about the this analog uh, pocket reference, analog engineers pocket reference guide from TI? Does anybody find it uh, just as uh, useful and and kind of cool to have it at your hand, uh, at your arm's length uh, reach when needed, as I do? Yeah, I'd say it was. <laughs> It was useful to me. Uh, just recently, I uh, I was getting a kick out of your instrumentation app that was as, as your example, as the INA333, which recently bailed me out in a project uh, at work. Uh, I have an instrumentation app in a medical device that I work on, and we had it drifting all over with temperature and also uh, offsets. Uh, voltage that you were talking about, Joe, and uh, the INA333 is fairly recent. It wasn't available when this project was originally designed, and we had to redesign it, and I put the INA333 in there, and it worked like a champ. So that brought a special smile to my face. Oh, very good, Craig. That, that's kind of interesting. Good story. I hadn't noticed that that was an INA333, and I would imagine thus it is able to be purchased and utilized in those specific uh, instances that you and, and Joe kind of uh, relayed. Um, any other questions before we move on? Yeah, Mike, go ahead. Yeah, I noticed a couple of the things that were picked out of this book are applicable to uh, some of the uh, projects that we're working on. The temperature measurement uh, stuff uh, goes along with the uh, oven controller and the uh, LED uh, temperature display that we've got going. And uh, some of the op-amp stuff is uh, uh, interesting to analyze the SW30, uh, one of the uh, audio amplifier stages. Hey, great point. And you're right that, you know, uh, Joe and I selected the materials here based on, on how relevant and um, common or how applicable it might be to some of our current projects. So great, great point on that one. Um, other questions, other points that you want to make, anybody wants to make before we move on? Okay. Well, let's then move on down to the uh, section, uh, major section number two, which is now for the project updates. Um, 
hopefully uh, hopefully you've been following along on our projects, if not actually um, been putting some of the circuits together and grabbing onto them, um, uh, the, either the kits or the components that we've been making available, such that you can be doing some of this uh, along with us. That's the whole goal for this. And what we'd like to do is kind of take a, a little bit slowly and move the project along, plus the fact that... <laughs> A few of us still have day jobs, as Craig uh, sort of alluded to. I'm always alluding to it. Can hardly find time to do the good stuff in life relative as compared to the day job. The salt mines, as a, a friend of mine used to say all the time. Um, so we wanted to give you an update on, on um, some of the projects. Uh, let's mention, let's, let's start talking first about the GPS Disciplined Oscillator Project. We have... Uh, We've um, been spending a number of, of episodes concerning the, this, and again, in a nutshell, the GPS DO project is, uh, if you're looking at the schematic, it's easiest, and the schematic is just about as easy as a block diagram to, to look at. So pull up the schematic there, and you see that at the heart and the virtual center, uh, the logical center, the physical center of the diagram is our 10 megahertz VCXO. It's the uh, the project that started it all uh, some three, maybe four months ago. Now I've forgotten. But there's where uh, we ultimately put together a circuit, a small circuit board that spit out a 10 megahertz signal. Um, the uh, and, um, other major components to this are down in the lower right-hand corner, which was kind of our um, next uh, step that we took. And Mike, do you want to kind of walk us through the temperature display, not the function as much as not the individual breakdown and, and purpose for the individual components, but just in general, what we were trying to achieve there, as well as on the left-hand side, you see the oven control. So it kind of works hand in hand. And uh, Mike, can you explain how we intend and how you have indeed coupled it up uh, in your breadboards that is displayed below and um, what uh, what we've got working so far there? Well, the temperature display has three LEDs, uh, a red one when the temperature in the oven is above the set point, a blue one when it's below the set point, and then green when everything is good uh, within a certain limitation uh, uh, variation from the set point. And uh, that's kind of a nifty little circuit just at a glance to see how things are going temperature-wise. Within the uh, oven, uh, there's a voltage uh, uh, temperature sensor that uh, has a feedback that controls the uh, amount of current that goes to the heater. There is a uh, potentiometer that you have to set to set that set point, and the temperature display is kind of a handy uh, little circuit to uh, set that potentiometer to get within the range that we want it to be. Uh, so actually, between the oven, it has a temperature sensor. The uh, temperature display has a temperature sensor, uh, and uh, those are independent of each other, so the display kind of checks on the performance of the oven. So uh, it kind of works out well, and I've had that breadboarded and uh, quite happy with the, the results from it. All righty. Thank you for that. And actually, Alan just asked a question in the chat section, and it's a very common question. He asks, 
Um, given that the VCXO is phase locked to the GPS receiver, and we'll get to that in just a moment, I'm going to tap over or switch over to Dave in just a moment to talk about the Neo 7 receiver that we're using. But Alan asks, given that the VCO is phase locked to the GPS receiver, what benefit is there by stabilizing the temperature of the VCXO? And that's a that's a great question. Um, in a in a nutshell, there's there's really two levels of questions that could be asked, and then two levels of answers. One might first ask, you know, why not just use the output of the of the uh, GPS receiver? Um, you know, it's a nice, you know, it's locked to the uh, GPS satellites, really good accuracy, onboard oscillator, and even some of them are temperature compensated. Um, but it's a common practice in precision frequency generation devices, um, professional ones, that they use an oven. And what we have is the oven is is a VCXO plus our oven control. So that's we have in essence an oven, an oven-controlled oscillator, an OCXO, that um, outputs, first of all, it outputs a, a, a pretty nice sine wave. We shape it up even more to get rid of even further sig- uh, spurs and spurious signals. So we end up with a pretty nice uh, uh, sine wave. Um, but the GPS receiver, if you were just to use the signal coming out of it, its signal, its output, first of all, oftentimes is, is often just a, a, a square wave. Um, or a really ratty sine wave, or something that attempts to be a sine wave. Um, so it is, it's only temperature compensated. It is not temperature controlled. If you were to place a, a GPS receiver chip, much like the, you know, the Neo 7 that we pictured here and, and are using for this project, um, in a temperature extreme environment, out in the cold and bring it in um, into a warm area or have it cycle the temperature beyond the limits of what the temperature compensation is able to handle, an oven is often used to stabilize it further. Signals are uh, being used by these frequency, uh, these professional frequency um, standards are often used for great precision over time. And the stability is extremely important for use in cell towers, uh, cellular communications, and other types of purposes. Um, over time, even in ham radio, although uh, ham radio tends to be a much shorter time of use for precision signals. So... Um, the uh, so the signals that, that that are generated by the oven control are more stable over time. And by the way, it's there's a measurement of this called ADEV, um, Allen deviation, which over time measures the stability and, and establishes how stable to like uh, 10 to the 12th, uh, 10 to the minus 12th. Um, um, uh, is stability. It can be, can be generated. So when you couple this with the accuracy coming from a GPS receiver, which disciplines an oven control that is, that establishes that it has very good stability over time and at the same time ultimately produces a really nice sine wave for those applications that require a sine wave. Um, you end up with such a, a precision type of uh, um, frequency standard. So hopefully, Alan, that uh, the kind of answers uh, or addresses some of the issues you had. Um, Dave, can you chat for just a moment? Oh, golly, we're up to five minutes away from the, the, the witching hour for some of us, for some of the listeners. Dave, uh, mention just a quick, uh, I'm going to hold this and come back to it because I do want to hit something else. And I, I apologize for, for moving around, but uh, uh, stand by a second. 
Okay. Um, we're going to switch down now to major section number two, which is the SW30 and the Elmer and, and the Elmer 101 uh, project. The reason I want to get to this soon is because Mike is going to go um, off to Fox to hunt foxes. Um, and um, Mike has been instrumental with us in uh, at least one aspect of the SW30 transceiver project as depicted there in this section. Um, Mike, do you want to kind of highlight for us in the few minutes that you have left what your role or what one of your roles is as far as documenting the assembly and test sections for the um, what's turning out to be both the manual for the SW30 as well as our our personalized uh, Elmer 101 guide. I'm really excited about the uh, SW30 project. Uh, that's such a great circuit that uh, Dave Benson uh, came up with. No longer state-of-the-art, certainly, but uh, very understandable. And uh, I've put together a uh, set of instructions uh, based on previous Elmer 101 write-ups uh, to help assembly uh, in about 13 different steps with the hope that uh, maybe some people that have never built a, a transceiver uh, will take on the opportunity here uh, with a lot of hand-holding and uh, good instruction to uh, put one of these things together. Uh, and I've been building it uh, several times just on paper to make sure I got all the details right. And I'm uh, right at the point now where I can uh, start soldering components into the board. I've uh, collected my own set of parts. Uh, and uh, kind of as I build the thing, uh, record voltages uh, for further information on the test procedures. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping that quite a few people are going to uh, uh, follow with us. And uh, once you understand this circuit, the superheterodyne receiver and uh, the transceiver part of the transmitter, uh, you'll see that in even the more modern designs of similar kits that we have that maybe have DDS VFOs and other multi-band characteristics, you'll be able to understand uh, why they have what they've got in the, the circuitry. Uh, and uh, it's really been a, a fun project for me and looking forward to... Uh, actually uh, getting to talk about it as we get into those sessions. Uh, go ahead, George. Uh, fine business, Mike. You betcha. This is um, back when Dave was doing it. It became it was known by everybody back then as an excellent platform for illustrating the basics of different um, radio uh, um, rig stages as they were put together, whether it's the oscillator, the mixer, the audio amp, all sorts of design techniques were very clearly and plainly implemented by Dave, who is just a brilliant uh, designer. He's kind of retired a little bit from the scene, but he's still around and he's given us uh, uh, permission to resurrect a limited run of this um, project again. And we, we grabbed onto that with both hands and are having some fun with it as we prepare some of our own documentation, which Mike is just uh, really excited about being involved in. And we're, we're kind of tapping that enthusiasm. And we're, uh, we hope that those who ultimately get the SW30 um, that we are offering here and chat with the designers, not just to put it on a shelf and, and hang on to it for a rainy day um, or to sell it off later on on your own or when it gets scarce. or We actually want or hoping that you're going to build it and use the materials that we, Mike and Joe and Dave and Larry and 
and uh, and myself, I guess, are, are all putting this all together, and with the hopes of of uh, having it be a nice learning platform, an Elmer one, an Elmer platform, which was the original intent. So, uh, Mike, you're going to go. Thanks an awful lot for your uh, contribution here tonight. Uh, good luck in the fox hunt. Well, thank you very much. Looking at the uh, spectrum uh, of 40 meters, band conditions as they have been are not very good. I'll be half listening uh, to the discussion as it goes on here. All righty. Glad to have you do that. So continuing on, just to keep this thread before we interrupt, we have Threadus interrupt us again. Um, uh, the the SW30 project, as I indicated, was started many years ago. Well, um, I can't read my own uh, inserted diagram there. Nine, uh, 2007? I can't read when the original instruction manual that's uh, pictured there on our page was written by Dave. But um, at, at least seven to ten years ago is when that uh, this project was around. And back then, many people, um, many hams, industrious and and um, uh, um, capable uh, hams that are capable of communicating well, something I have trouble doing sometimes, is um, had grabbed onto this and created uh, uh, the Elmer 101 series. In fact, if you slide down to section three, which is related to number two, so I'm not too far off base, you'll see four different implementations of the Elmer 101 course or incarnations of the 101 course, four different uh, hams or group of hams got together and they put together their own sequential series of instructions and analysis and tests and operating and and really, really good materials. We didn't want to supersede anything there um, or trivialize or miss any of it. So we listed it all there. And all you have to do is kind of click on these, any of these four images and you can download uh, the materials uh, to your own computer and, and uh, use this publicly available mat uh, material to your educational benefit. And uh, again, it's a course, um, much as you would have a school course, but it's a much more fun than any any kind of school course that I've ever taken. And I think the the premier one that sort of, I don't know which one started at all, but uh, QRPP magazine um, from the Nor uh, from NorCal QRP Club back uh, in 1998 uh, put together an entire issue of uh, uh, their magazine for dedicated for the Elmer 101 um, information and series of instructions and, and such. And if you can get your hands on that paper copy, you would be, it would be gold. You would be in, in good shape. Um, we provided the link there to the publicly available link uh, to the material online. Um, it's like 50 megabytes almost. So be careful when you download it, but it's, it's great material. And the others are good too. And each brings an element of, of uh, goodness. The goodness that we add here with the chat with the designers version of the Elmer 101 is, um, is, uh, it comes about in a couple of ways. One is that we are focusing on it being a 30 meter version, whereas at least um, it started off, I think, as a 40 meter version, Joe, and maybe also a 20 meter version was available. I'm not sure if ever there were was a um, a 30 meter version talked about and certainly not explained. Do you know if there was? I'm not certain. Um, no, not certain. I, I think it was also an 80 meter version, which I had, but uh, not sure the 30 was ever made. Um, but uh, I'm glad there's a 30 meter version now. Yeah, I'm, I am too. Uh, 30 meters is fun. Joel, you've extolled the, the benefits of, uh, of of 30 meters and 
in light of uh, not having contesting on it and propagation is a nice mix between uh, between the uh, the popular 20 and popular and crowded uh, 20 and the and the evening oriented uh, 40 meters so it's it's a fun one to operate on so given a new territory there we we dove into that um, another another benefit that kind of came about was that we uh, we uh, tapped the shoulder of our good friend Craig W or uh, AA0ZZ um, over there in Minneapolis and uh, we know that Craig had been doing some really fine work as far as PCB enclosures and we thought man what a cool way to do a cool project and in as much we wanted to keep to the original size and and shape uh, but we didn't want to incur the costs that uh, that might be present on some of the fancier all aluminum um, cases were uh, that are around today but have some fun in doing it too so we tapped on Craig and and Craig can you tell us a little bit about what we have pictured here and what's coming down the line yeah okay thanks George and uh, this is really fun um, I've had some experience over the last several years in building some PCB cases for a couple projects that I've done. You see the one there is the little easy keyer that uh, we I did for as a fundraiser for the four states QRP club, and uh, that came together real nicely. And it's nice little notched sides and everything. It it uh, holds together with a rubber band until you solder, tack solder, in a few corners, and, and then it holds together. And it's it really goes together in just a few minutes. And uh, the builders really love it because it's all silk screened. Uh, all the labeling is on. In fact, the little keyer has the manual written on the back cover. The back flip it over and there's the manual for it. So is that kind of thing that really makes a PCB uh, enclosure nice. Uh, all the holes are pre-drilled. That's one of the pains. I mean, I know I did a number of projects. In fact, I did the, one of the Elmer projects. I have a Manhattan uh, three, uh, one, actually a 30-meter one uh, that I built way back uh, with Manhattan style, and uh, it's sitting there with all the legs hanging out. I made one contact with it, never did put it in an enclosure because I hated drilling holes. I hated uh, having to label it and everything. Well, this is the way to do it. Uh, this is all pre-drilled and pre-silk uh, screened. They slap together in just a few minutes. Uh, the thing that's a little different about this one is if you look at that picture, is uh, the sides here, this is a prototype, and the sides are out the right dimension but it's going to have a little overhang, kind of like a porch on it. So it's not going to be just a straight box. It's going to have a, you don't see the top cover, but that'll extend over the front just a little bit too, just a quarter of an inch. It'll make it aesthetically nice, I think, and it'll be a nice little box. It'll still have the little homebrew flavor to it, but it'll still look professional. So I think it's going to be, and it's going to be very uh, inexpensive, very uh, economical. Uh, I'm not sure of the exact price. Oh, it has four corner studs, by the way. That holds the top uh, cover on and also, there's rubber feet on the bottom that go in through the cover into the into the bottom cover into those corner studs. So that's what holds it all together in addition to the solder. But they hook together in just a few minutes, and uh, I think it comes out with a real nice little case that'll be that'll be fun to to put together and fun to use. So. Well, thanks, Craig, and thanks for playing along with us. This is uh, as you said you said it right there. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, and it's easy to put together and use, and it looks like way cool. Guarantee you won't have anything else around like that um, on, on your bench, and be kind of proud to show it off. Um, yeah, we're working up the prices. It's going to be an optional add or an optional purchase uh, along with a kit if you're so interested in getting the kit. And uh, um, this is all kind of priced down as low as we can, and we're, we're not funding our children's uh, university years in the future on this one so we're just making it available 
in the easiest and best way that we can. Um, a, a number of guys have said, uh, hey, uh, George and Craig, you know, I really like this thing, but hey, can you make it bigger and we can include a keyer in the top of it or we can include a display. Uh, we can include uh, uh, who knows what, a power, an RF power amp, you know. We made a conscious decision, Craig, you and I, to keep this thing just to the kind of like the bare minimum, you know, not to uh, make it too big. But you want to, pardon me, you want to tell me, uh, tell us um, a little bit about some of the ideas you had for like how to accessorize? Yeah, uh, we're talking about another version of the kit, virtually the same size, same dimensions, uh, but uh, no uh, holes drilled in it, no silk screening, so it can be made into anything you would like it to be. A little box that fits on top, and you can uh, put anything you want into it. Um, you could put accessories, say, power supplies, uh, anything you want in it, and uh, it'd be a nice way to uh, Raspberry Pi or whatever. You could you could drive it with DDS. You could do all kinds of things with it, but uh, it'd just be a nice little accessory that go along with it. Yes, indeed. Hey, Mike, if you're still listening, you could probably put an Arduino in there, too. <laughs> Mike, Mike has been our Arduino activist um, here on Chat with the Designers, and I dare say that we're going to have uh, another episode or two coming back to applications with the uh, Arduino, some really cool uses that we're going to wrap into some of our projects. Uh, so if you if you care for the Arduino, it tends to be a very uh, popular way these days in the amateur radio magazines, ARRL and otherwise, if you keep up with those things. And we're going to be playing right along with that. So uh, um, thanks for your playing along here with the, on the project, uh, Craig. It's, it's really connecting with you again. You and I last, uh, gosh, we last connected on the PIC. Um, uh, the, uh, what was the name of the PIC project? The PICL. PICL. <laughs> I know. The PICL, the PICL project. And, uh, man, you've been published on, and, uh, on covers of, of either QST or QEX uh, numerous times. Um, and uh, congratulations for all of that. And hey, if listeners want to take a look at that keyer, the EZ keyer three, I've got one. And uh, well, that's probably Craig's hand showing. I've got one here, and it's just really, really nifty. And it's a great example of how our um, RSW30 uh, enclosure is going to come together. Um, let's see. Questions at this time on the uh, on the SW30, since we've been talking about that most recently. Um, does anybody have any questions about the project? Are you eager and looking forward to us getting started on that? Go ahead. Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? Anyone? <laughs> oh, thank you, Ray. I was going to do that until somebody responded. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at the pictures, and it, uh, it's a really neat-looking uh, little project. And uh, as you've said, uh, 30 is the band. Yes, indeed. Uh, thank you for that. And, uh, okay, so Pat, uh, W0BM asks, uh, is there any timeline and when it will be available? It meaning the SW30. We are... Uh, it's my intent. It's our intent. I'm kind of like the project manager and uh, uh, the chief dreamer. So um, it's my intent that uh, we want to produce, have the kit ready and in hand um, before we officially launch the, uh, the first program for its analysis. So we want to give people a chance to uh, get the kit and uh, those who want to and um, and start on it. Because there will be some people who want to follow stage by stage, and I think this is going to be a good way to do it. That said, now is the end is middle to end of November. Next month is is too soon for the kit availability. So we're shooting for January. 
the second uh uh the second uh, Tuesday in January is when we're going to be launching it. Yeah, I know it's been a year since we said we were going to, but that's the way life goes. Um, but we're there, and uh, he hasn't joined us here tonight. Uh, but Larry, um, I'm not going to pronounce, even try to pronounce his last name. But Larry K3PEG um, uh, is our uh, our chief um, elf, and uh, Larry is already collecting parts and starting to work on a parts card, so to speak. <clears throat> and he's got some unique ideas for how we can be uh, um, identifying some of the parts and making it crystal clear for people to know what components go where and uh, which components to grab out of the part. We're not going to be just creating a parts bag where everything is tossed in, shaken, but not stirred, and uh, we're going to make it real easy for people to put it together. So all said and done, uh, Pat, probably uh, second week of January, if desired, you will have it in hand and ready to rock and roll with us. Um, any other uh, any other questions? Okay, we're just going to have one manual. It's that SW30 transceiver manual, and it's going to contain all of our value add. And uh, we urge you to study the other materials that are online and referenced here. It is uh, really good stuff. No surface <laughs> mount either, right, Joe? Or right, George? Um, yes, that's uh, that's true. No surface mount. It was kind of before the time of surface mountism activists, so to speak. So that, that that's a good thing. Yeah, I know that's a plus for some people. They don't like surface mount yet. So that's, it hits both sides, but I think it's still a good idea. All righty. Um, Dave, are you still awake over there in uh, Arizona? Yeah, I think so. I didn't know if it was time for... Uh, for uh, dinner or walking the dog or uh, uh, beverage time. But uh, <laughs> what I wanted to do is pass it over to you. Let's go back up to the GPS uh, uh, Disciplined Oscillator Project. That's uh, project number one here. And let's finish off just chatting about that for a quick uh, second. Uh, let's talk for a minute about the uh, the GPS receiver, the Neo 7M. You probably have been the uh, the most proactive um, experimenter with all the different types of uh, little GPS receivers that have been we've been finding around on the eBay. And between you and Mike and me, we've been really kind of and Joe's been in there too. He's he's playing with his his uh, Neo 7. Um, as well, and uh, we're all getting a good feel for it. But could you kind of give us some thoughts on on that little receiver and any observations you might have about its coolness factor? Well, its its biggest coolness factor, of course, is its price. It's unbelievable. Uh, the we, we've been doing some work. I've been working with Mike and and been improving the 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 uh, the, the displays and whatnot that are are in this project. And uh, trying to make it more intuitive and whatnot, and I've been posting the uh, the the latest versions of the firmware on the um, NAT SNA. Since it is an application that runs on the on the uh, SNA, I've been posting them on the NAT SNA Yahoo group. So anybody interested in getting the latest version, that's a place to go. Um, the things we've made, made some a few changes. We've done things like uh, well, we, we we hooked up a uh, a dash eight to it, the, the latest U-Box configuration, and discovered lots and lots of terminals. In fact, right now I'm looking at one uh, sitting on my windowsill that is, has 25 satellites in view and 18 of them are tracking. Uh, it turns out that the, the reason there's so many is that uh, this version is also tracking the Russian satellites. So we've got almost a 50-50 split there between the, the Russians and the, and the U.S. satellites. And so we've, we've done some expansion there so we can show more satellites and, and, and whatnot and see what's going on. 
that's been kind of interesting. Uh, we've also done a lot to, uh, thanks to Mike, to improve the uh, navigation between screens, the uh, trying to make everything more intuitive and whatnot. And so that's mainly what's been going on. And like I say, all this stuff is available on a uh, on the Matt SNA uh, Yahoo site. Uh, for those of you that have a, a Midnight SNA, uh, you can go there and get whatever the latest is. And we, we've also done some things like uh, make it possible to to set the uh, the startup parameters in the in the receivers so that you don't have to go in and change, say, the frequencies and whatnot every time you go in there. Uh, we can lock them in. And anyway, that's in a nutshell what's been going on. And a good nutshell it is. I'll tell you guys, there there's really nothing better than collaborating on projects. Uh, the internet, obviously, over the last ten year, twenty years, uh, well, maybe fifteen, has really enabled that uh, to a great extent. I mean, evidence this very forum that we're chatting on now, evidence the. The podcasts that uh, are you may be listening to remotely after the fact, but my collaboration with with my design buddies and almost all of them are here right now on on the show is is like an indescribable relative to the opportunity that I have to play with uh, my friends. As my, as my wife often says, are you going down there to play with your friends again? And I said, yeah, I'm going to. And didn't have it wasn't as easy in the past, and uh, the the uh, the degree to which I've learned and uh, benefited from working with Dave and then working individually with Mike and working a lot with my own Elmer Joe has uh, is just phenomenal. So, geez, I don't even know what got me into this groove. But just uh, suffice it to say that uh, there's a lot of good stuff that can can be happening with uh, <clears throat> with our design team and your design team, where whatever you might be or who I'm working on or who you're doing it with your designs. Um, and uh, this here on chat with the designers is one evidence of it. Dave um, um, obviously shifted down to the last section concerning the G um, the GPS display terminal. Uh, where it is pictured that the Neo 7 is also plugging into. So we're doing double service, double service for the, that Neo 7M GPS receiver. That $15 wonder, um, is, uh, integral to the GPS DO as well as to this display terminal, uh, being able to display its parameters. So, uh, Dave, uh, thank you for all your, your work and contribution on this project. Uh, this is like way fun. Uh, and we're hoping a goal of the chat with the designers is that others who follow along and participate with us find it equally valuable. Even if you don't build it, you know, you, you should. <clears throat> but even if you don't, following along and just kind of understanding what's coming along is, is, uh, can be a great satisfaction. Speaking of great satisfaction, I forgot. Um, this has been a, a program of jumping around and going back to the Elmer 101, um, and actually probably to the, uh, SW30 section. Yeah, it's the SW30 section. We see something called the voltage variable capacitance diode characterization, uh, photo and some all sorts of neat stuff. Joe, my apologize, my apologies for kind of, uh, missing that. It's been, uh, hopping around like uh, um, like a lot. And uh, you want to take it over here, and what the heck are you doing there, and why are you doing it? Sure. Glad to do it, George. 
Yeah, um, one of the issues, particularly with a kit that uh, was designed um, back in the last century, one of the issues is uh, getting the com getting appropriate components uh, and getting them in quantity and getting them uh, affordable. So um, one of the things that has become difficult to get is the uh, voltage variable capacitor that uh, Dave Benson designed into the original rig. He was able to get quantities of uh, the Motorola MV1662, uh, which he used in the initial design. And um, that is somewhat still available. You get it on eBay. Um, occasionally it's available, and sometimes it's economical. But um, it was our desire to use something that was more available. And as it turns out, the uh, MVAM 109 diode is available. Um, in fact, I think we got ours from uh, Diz's uh, Kits and Parts down in Florida. But it has somewhat different uh, characteristics. It, uh, it is a voltage variable capacitance diode whose uh, capacitance changes with applied voltage. So in order to see whether or not it was going to work in this um, video, um, I breadboarded up the uh, the oscillator shown in the picture. Um, not a, a real pretty thing, but it's uh, it's good enough to do the job. And I I, um, I rounded up five MV 1662s, uh, no four MV 1662s, and five MVAM 109s. And I did some measurements on the uh, tuning range of each. Um, I won't go into a lot of depth, but um, that's basically what I did. And there's a there's a chart there that shows uh, shows um, the tuning range for each of the different samples. And you can see that they're all close to what's needed. The actual frequency is 2.42 megahertz in the radio. They they beat with a 7.68 megahertz uh, crystal oscillator to come out on uh, 10 meter amp. They're all pretty close, and uh, surprisingly, there's not that much difference between the two types of diodes, which was excellent. So taking the numbers I got from there and just kind of randomly picking one of the MVAM 109s, I, um, I used the instructions in the manual to pick a, a fixed capacitor that sets the actual tuning range that um, um, is needed for the SWL, uh, the SW30. And I was able to get a, um, a tuning range of uh, just under 30 uh, kilohertz. And uh, again, using the instructions in the uh, uh, construction manual, I um, spread and compressed the turns on the toroid in the oscillator. I was able to center it at the low end of the uh, 30 meter band. So bottom line is it tunes 10, uh, 10.1 to 10.128 megahertz, which is kind of a sweet spot in the 30, 30 meter band. Uh, where most of the uh, activity uh, takes place. As I mentioned in a comment to, uh, to Mike earlier uh, offline, um, I've never worked anybody above 10.125 megahertz, and I rarely hear anybody above uh, that frequency other than the uh, digital boys who are at 10.14. Bottom line, the, um, the uh, substitute diode works fine, and uh, you know, with the instructions that are in the uh, manual, you'll be able to tweak the darn thing uh, and get it to tune exactly where you need it. That's great. And I'll tell you, um, this kind of illustrates how you one can, uh, this is more of a designer type of uh, topic <clears throat> or comment, 
But one can uh, one can design a circuit according to published specifications of a component. Yet the resulting frequency, voltage, current, or whatever other parameter that's that's being uh, uh, used as a result will vary uh, from what the ideal is based on the component, uh, the individual components variance. Um, how much each component varies according to its own tolerances. And knowing how a component varies um, is instrumental in actually, you know, doing a design that works um, every time or close to every time. So this work is really um, very helpful for us, Joe, because as you said, we had to um, upgrade some components because they're no longer available. And uh, appreciate the work that you've done here. Not only is it is it useful for the project, but it's really instructional and interesting to see what you've done. Thank you, and it was fun. Okay, there have been a couple of questions that have come in on the uh, uh, the chat window. Um, uh, Al asks, um, "Are we uh, are we planning on putting out a motherboard for the uh, with the GPSDO uh, project?" And the answer is, "Yeah." In fact, it's pictured there, right there on the screen. So this is a motherboard that's going to slide right into that's that uh, pretty sexy uh, um, aluminum uh, enclosure that we've been featuring or uh, photo, uh, picturing in recent uh, episodes. And it uh, the the motherboard will contain the different modules that we've been talking about and designing and and uh, tweaking all the way along the VCXO, the oven control, the temperature circuit, the Neo 7M receiver. And some output wave shaping uh, uh, circuits, and also, of course, the PLL itself, the CD406, the CDHC, whatever, the the 4046 um, phase detector chip, and um, put some connectors on it, and make it all available for those who want to get it. Some of you have been getting picking up the incremental kits. And uh, that's cool, and that's um, that's why the motherboard is is being produced, and we'll be offering that just as soon as it's together. Probably by next uh, uh, the next time that we meet, we'll have this all operational and that uh, that kit of parts available. Uh, you ask about it being a uh, a bare board, we can do that too. And if you want to collect the circuits on your own, that's that's just fine. Um, Pat uh, W0BM asks on the Neo 7M, where do you tap off on the uh, uh, for the one megahertz time pulse to feed the PLL? Uh, Dave, if you're still on board, you want to address that? I know the answer, but I thought I'd uh, see uh, uh, if uh, you're still awake over there. I'm awake. Um, yeah, we, we, th- there's an LED that flashes on the uh, on the little board that the uh, dash 7M is on. Uh, that happens to be the output of the test point or the time pulse one. And uh, I don't have the schematic in front of me, but there's a pin that comes out, you know, from from the uh, from the module that that just goes to a circuit that does the the uh, drives the LED. Uh, if you go in there and you have to tap a wire on that and bring it off the board, um, I, I, I don't know where it is, but someplace there's there on um, on our website there's a uh, a picture of the bringing the wire out to a, a connector I added to the board. Um, and the, anyway, that's where you pick it up. Okay. Does that, uh, Pat, I don't know if you've got audio, but does that answer your question? <laughs> yes. It, he he types yes, it does, in the chat window. Cool. Um, George, George, one yeah. note. Yeah, Joe, go ahead. Um, uh, Dave didn't mention, but um, it, it's not a real big issue. You can do it in the software, but uh, you also have to, uh, give instructions to the Neo 7M to tell it to output one megahertz, 
instead of one pulse per second. Absolutely right. And on the Neo 7, you see some RX and TX um, lines, which are digital lines that uh, will initially connect over to your uh, uh, to a PC that you can use to configure it, and that will do the job. Um, this is the goal. We didn't mention the functional operation of the GPSDO board, but bottom line is that the VCXO um, outputs a 10 megahertz signal. It is divided down by 10 in two steps. We won't get into those details of why, but nonetheless, we divide it by 10 to produce a 1 megahertz signal going into the 4046. The other signal going into the 4046 phase detector comes from the Neo 7M. And as Joe just indicated, we need to program that um, Neo 7M to output a one megahertz pulse. Normally it's a one pulse per second, a one hertz signal, but we command it uh, through commands that are issued from the PC over the the UART port to the Neo 7M. We command it to output one megahertz. And then that uh, 4046 chip, that phase detector chip, compares the phases of those two signals and outputs a signal that is uh, proportional to the difference in phase. And that signal feeds into the um, VCXO um, to complete the loop, thus driving the VCXO to be at a constant frequency. And then uh, we have a nice, stable uh, phase-locked loop um, type of um, signal generation. Um, all right. Um, last chance for questions. We're definitely going to wrap it up. We've, we've gone five minutes longer than I really wanted to ever. So any quick questions before we call it quits? All right. That's that. Um, Alan, go ahead. Yeah, I was just kind of flashing there. Um, yeah, we could probably pick this up maybe by email afterwards. Um, this was the reason for my question is, you know, given that you're controlling the VCXO in a loop and maintaining its frequency to be you know, in lock with the one megahertz output of the GPS. That, that's why I'm wondering why one needed to ovenize that. Only in my mind, all the you know, all the temperature stabilization is going to do is to ensure that the variation on the control voltage is not going to vary much with temperature. But if you had it in a room, unless I'm missing something, we can pick it up later on. I don't want to drag this out longer than you wanted to. Okay, um, we can indeed. Thank you for asking it. That's a very astute question, and I've got a um, an astute response for that. <laughs> And, uh, you know, we can chat about it offline and maybe pick it up next uh, next time as well. Um, but is it just as in a simple summary, every as you can appreciate, especially at the system level, there are many factors that affect and um, or that can affect uh, stability and accuracy. And uh, the more you have control over those factors, um, the more accurate and stable your signal is ultimately going to be. And um, there are a ton of system issues from that range from noise to temperature to voltage to uh, to physical um, that all that can uh, that can all impact um, the output performance. It's not our goal. It is not our goal to produce the be all end all professional, you know, five thousand dollar version of a of a frequency standard, but to illustrate the principles of doing such. Um, and uh, that's 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 kind of like what we do in the GPSDO project. But thanks for the question. We'll pick it up later on. Joe, I'm going to turn it over to you and ask you to take us home. I don't know how you're going to do it this time. We've been hopping around the, the rocks here in the stream like a like a frog on a hot uh, black fold as, asphalt uh, driveway. But uh, give it a shot. Take us home. All right. Glad to do it. 
Very good. This has been a, um, as George mentioned, it's been a kind of a hop around the uh, subject session. But uh, in summary, what we've done is um, to provide what we think is a handy um, uh, reference derived from some information, a uh, pamphlet put or a, um, an online document put out by Texas Instruments with some uh, some good cheat sheets, some reference material. Um, for homebrewers and hams to um, to get a quick look at uh, various topics to get some idea of um, what various circuits do and um, and uh, what you have to do to play with them. Obviously, you get more depth, but um, this is a quick hit and a cheat sheet, something to get you going in the right direction. We also uh, introduced the um, chat with the designers team, the guys who. Uh, in front of the in front of the mic and behind the scenes, so to speak, have been working on the various projects we have. Have some pictures of them so that you can get some idea what they look like. And some have uh, well, one guy has a really neat shack. Another guy has a pretty neat shack. And um, a couple look like my workbench. And uh, my picture looks like something that just scared little kitties away. I I mentioned on the uh, the chat window that uh, my pulmonologist uh, found that I'm allergic to solder smoke. So after various testing and stuff, he he has me wear a uh, a mask, a filter mask while I'm soldering, so that uh, it doesn't cut into my soldering time. Anyway, we also provided updates on uh, on the projects, the uh, GPS discipline oscillator. There's some very, been some very good questions about uh, what's going on with the uh, with the project, uh, some of the technical details, and some of the uh, some of the highlights of uh, what's important. We also provided a, um, a summary of the um, SW30, the Shortwave 30 project that uh, tied in with Elmer 101, gave the reference material and um, provided some information about what's going on with that um, to the point where um, uh, come the beginning of the year, we expect to have it in people's hands and we're going to have a, um, a document completed by uh, Mike W8PXN to, um, help people along as they build it so that they can um, not only build it but get it to work and um, that will be a very very pleasant thing to see um, thank you all for participating this evening we thank you for your questions and your interest and i uh, hope you'll stay with us and um, uh, as we finish up these projects in the future 73 for the night